Welcome to this week's episode of the Radio Oedipus podcast, the podcast where we explore the culture of beer. Brought to you by Oedipus Brewing, and I'm your host, Danny Walker. You're tuned in to episode number 31, and if you would like to check out previous shows, you can head over to our website, and there you'll find all previous episodes of the podcast. Our address is oedipus.com forward slash radio. This week, we forget everything we thought we knew about beer history as we are joined by beer historian and writer Ron Pattinson. Sandra and I first met Ron back in October when Ron gave a talk at fellow Amsterdam brewers Butcher's Tears Tears Bar about the rise and fall of the Mild Ale. Mild Ale and also Ron's books are a big influence on Oedipus's new winter seasonal multiball. Therefore, it only made sense to invite him for a chat and talk British drinking history and have him sample our new beer. The discussion dives into the history of the pub, the differences in Dutch drinking culture, is there even a criteria for a mild ale? Of course we talk multi-ball and then Sandra and Ron debate whether beer styles are even necessary anymore. All that on today's episode of the Radio Oedipus podcast. Today we're joined by beer historian and writer Ron Patterson. Uh, He's here to give us a history lesson in what beer drinking Britain looked like during the 1900s. We're also going to talk about our new beer, Multiball, a beer very much influenced by English Maldays, ales, sorry. Uh, And I'm sure Sander has something to say about that in a bit. So, Ron, to kick us off, why is drinking beer such an important part of British history? Uh, Well, because if, if you go back to the 19th century, a lot of the working classes considered it considered beer to be an essential part of their diet. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because of the nutrition. Yeah, because yeah. of the nutritional value. Mm. Um, and you've got to think that they were drinking beers that were probably at least 6% ABV mm-hmm. and possibly quite a bit more than that. Yeah. Um, Very it's, un-British for today's standards. Well, but British beer's completely changed. It yeah. used to be the strongest beer in the world. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's only in the 20th century that that changed. If, yeah, you, if yeah. you go back to the 19th century, people were drinking really strong beer yeah, and having a pint on the way to work as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's maybe how the Germans do it now. Like they always have a, a you can have a, a lager during the day, right? Yeah, maybe well, that's I mean, frowned it, upon in England now a bit. Well, well <laughs> but I mean, in, in Munich, there's places yeah. where they have a, a breakfast that consists of a Weisswurst and half a litre of Weiss beer. Yeah. And that's... A breakfast special. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did when did it all change? When did we get such a? I'm going to say we because both uh, me and Ron are, are British uh, by root. Um, w- when did it all change? When did we start becoming the the culture that drink too much? We have this kind of we have a bad name for ourselves in terms of our drinking culture. Would you say? I don't know about that. No. Uh, well, well, I mean, if if you looked at if you go back to Victorian times. People drank way more beer then, even though it was quite a lot stronger than okay. people do now. Beer, beer consumption peaked per per capita in the mm-hmm. 1890s, mm-hmm. when it was probably about double what it is today. <laughs> so quite a lot of beer, but but it was because it was part of people's general diet, mm-hmm. and people would, would have a glass of beer with their meals. Mm-hmm. It was just a completely normal thing to do. So even if they weren't going to the pub, people would have a glass of beer, because they might well send the kids down to the pub to bring back a, a, a pint of beer for them, mm-hmm. just in a jug. I mean, that was quite common. And, and a lot of the older pubs, you'll see, they have a special doorway just for that, just for people to go in and get 
uh, beer to take away because they didn't want children and servant girls going in the public bar where all the riffraff were. So they had a special entrance for them, a special really? little bar. Wow. No way. That's amazing. Because, I mean, my mum used to do this when she was a kid. She'd go down to the pub and, and get a, a pint of old and mild mixed for our mum. Yeah. And what they do is they just put, a, like, a seal over the top of it. Yeah. So they could see if it, if it was broken that you might have been drinking some on the way back. <laughs> but it was weird that, that, that kids were allowed to do this, even though they weren't a, a supposedly allowed to buy alcohol. It was okay for kids to go and fetch beer for their parents because that's just what people did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. The, mark, the pub is kind of this uh, central thing in British drinking culture as well, isn't it? The pub. Um, it kind of serves as the location that offers the backbone to this community spirit. What were the pubs like when you were first drinking? Because I'm sure they were a lot different to when I first started. Yeah, um, lots more rooms is the basic thing. that You still had, most pubs were still had at least two rooms and quite possibly three or four um and so Why was that um do you know for, 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 well originally for different classes of people right mm. uh but also for different things so you you might have the pool table in one of the rooms mm. um that might is uh, maybe informally known as the tap room kind of thing well yeah well, there's various names so yeah tap room public bar vaults yeah, yeah. um that, that'd be where the beer would be the cheapest yeah and then in the other bits so that that almost certainly wouldn't have a carpet, yeah. whereas the the lounge or the saloon or whatever you want to call it, that'd have a carpet and the beer would cost a couple of pence more a pint. Really? Even the, sa- the same drinking uh, house would charge a bit more just for because the- there's carpet on the floor? Yeah, it'd always been like that. <laughs> I mean, in fact, in, in, in real terms, it was much less than it had originally been. Because if you go back to, the, to uh, before the Second World War, when... You know, a pint of mild might cost you five pence. Mm. It'd still be a penny more in mm. the lounge bar. So that's like 20% more. It's mm. a considerable difference. Mm. Whereas when I was drinking, you know, when beer might be 20 pence a pint, it might be a penny or two pence a pint more expensive in the lounge. So mm. five or 10% dearer. Mm. And did this also differ like when uh, we're kind of. Would you find more families in the lounge room as well? Maybe women as yeah, well? Yeah, normally, I mean... It's mainly men in the tap room. Well, in fact, in some cases, only men were allowed in the public bar. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can still remember seeing signs up saying men only, uh, even though but there were just signs that had still been there, sort of left over from when it had been legal, which mm. I think it stopped being in 73. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, generally... The better off people, yeah, uh, would be in the in the lounge side. Yeah, I mean another reason for the difference in price would be that, uh, like say in large parts of the north, you'd have waiter service in the in the posher bits. Right. So what you'd see in Leeds pubs typically all around the outside seating, bench seating, every so often there'd be a little push button, mm-hmm. and that'd be for the bell to attract the waiter's attention. Mm-hmm. Wow. So did pubs uh, change the way that they looked uh, regionally then? So would one in, in uh, oh yeah, how would they look different in the north compared to the south? Um, well, I, I mean, especially somewhere like Leeds, that uh, the pubs had a very distinct look. So you'd have in the centre would be, a, a, be the bar, at the front would be the tap room, then there'd be a corridor around the back yeah. where you'd have another bar, and then rooms off it, which wouldn't actually have a bar in them. 
it doesn't sound all that convenient really does it you think about now like bar is like a a really simple uh, room to service as many people as possible were those buildings really made for that purpose or was it yeah they were custom uh, built like that yeah yeah and uh, okay i'm gonna start a bar and i'm gonna okay i have these rooms and these corridors and, uh, yeah no, uh, well be the breweries who built them yeah oh mm. yeah of course yeah mm. there was sort of a blueprint yeah, well, well, I mean, Home Ales, one of the breweries that we had in Nottingham when I was a kid. Um, well, I used to drink, they had a, 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 some modern estate pubs, which were uh, literally identical to each other. So there's a pub in Mablethorpe on the coast we used to go in, mm. and one in Newark, and they were exact, <laughs> exactly the same, wow. mm-hmm. which was pretty weird. Mm. Yeah. And uh, would people drink, say, if you had uh, two pubs in a in a town, that would be two different breweries, I guess, right? And it would be your choice of beer, which, which one you well, drank, I guess. Well, if you were guess. lucky. Yeah? No, I mean, when I was growing up in Newark, I think there were 35 pubs, oh, right. and 31 of them were Courage. Oh, okay. So there wasn't that much uh, variation in terms of which breweries owned what? Um, you had some fairly bad local monopolies. Oh really? Yeah, like like Norfolk was really bad because Watneys had bought up all three of the Nor- Norwich breweries, mm. so they re- it was the large areas of Norfolk where they owned virtually all the pubs, mm-hmm. and their beer was shite. Yeah. Um. So you could be very unlucky. Yeah, <laughs> just because of where you were born. <laughs> mm. Is has that got better or has it got worse? Because now there's like bigger com- bigger commercial companies that uh, own most of the pubs now in England. Well, right? now it's all sort of mixed up, really. Yeah. Um, it's, it's probably easier to get a wide range of beers now. Yeah. Um, but it used to vary a lot. I mean, somewhere like Loughborough used to be dead good. You could, I think, they had beer from like at least a dozen different breweries. Mm. So there was a really good selection. Um, but other places would be rubbish. You might only have one or two choices of breweries, mm-hmm. even though there were dozens of pubs. Mm. When did you first start drinking? When, yeah, you, you've mentioned Leeds and also Loughborough and Newark. When was, where was you, did you do the majority of your drinking? <laughs> uh, probably in Leeds when, when I was at university. Yeah, and what were the beers that you were drinking? Then? Well, Tetley's, Tetley's Mild. Yeah? Yeah, that's all I drank. Yeah, and what did those first Tetley's Miles taste like? Well, I quite liked it initially, but but I really fell in love with it when they put the hand pulls back everywhere. Yeah. Because Tetley's Mild only tastes right if it's served through an economizer. Okay. And what yeah, what difference does that make to someone that doesn't really know what an economizer is? Well, an economizer, that's where you deliberately have the sparkler really, really tight. Oh, yeah. You deliberately pull loads of beer over the top. You get a head like on Guinness, mm-hmm. but through a hand pump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it entails lots of beer sloshing over the top. Mm-hmm. So the drip tray underneath has a mechanism that automatically feeds beer back into the beer coming up from the cask. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have anything like that in uh, Dutch drinking? Uh, Not that I'm Sunday? aware of. No? Uh, maybe they are. It's uh, the best kept secret of uh, <laughs> But But Tetley's only beer. tastes right it's when it's served yeah. like that. Yeah. Did you have one recently? Um, no, I think they've banned it again. Mm-hmm. I know you can still, you still get the cask with the sparkler on. I think I've actually used a, a sparkler. That's still... But that's a fairly common that's thing. That's a fairly though. common yeah. thing, right, to liven up the beer. But a, an economizer, I, I don't know. It doesn't sound very uh, clean anymore. I'm not sure that it passed British health and safety rules. Well, I right. think that's the problem with it. That's, uh, I think that's why it's disappeared. But uh, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. 
And like the there was would you find that different pubs in different areas kind of had different roles and different purposes? Did it, who was drinking in whichever pub you've mentioned that like maybe someone, there was richer families in one, but I always thought that pubs were maybe in the olden days, I'm going to say, were for the working classes maybe. Or, or, not, or, not totally. Not totally. No. Um, I mean, probably for the most part, but I think there have always been some quite posh pubs. Oh yeah. And pubs with, with really nice lounge bars. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to Victorian times, a lot of business was conducted in pubs. Mm. People didn't have offices. What what they do is they they just go to a pub, go into a sm- you know small quiet room, and you know drink something. And this is why it was always important for, for pubs to have a, one draft beer that cost a penny for a half pint because they needed to have something that was only a penny, because that some people, that was sort of like what they were prepared to pay to basically use the pub for another purpose. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you also see in the 19th century is inquests are quite often carried out in pubs, not in courts. Really? Yeah, and I think that carried on even into the 20th century. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. You wouldn't see that, wouldn't <laughs> see that now. <laughs> no way. Quite some remarkable effects... Uh... Uh, being mentioned here. Yeah, yeah. we're just being hit off the bat <laughs> yeah. when me, me and Sandra are a bit perplexed, I think. But, but one, one of the other interesting things is beer houses. Yeah. Right? So that's a, that's a different category of drinking hole, let's say. No, it's a, it was a legally separate ca- category. So in 1830, you had this thing called the Beer Act, and the idea was to make a, have a free market in beer. Okay. And one of the things they said was that if you wanted to open a pub that was only selling beer then you could do, all you had to do was meet a certain few very limited criteria. You didn't have to go through the local licensing magistrates. It was directly from the excise. Mm. And basically, the default was to grant it to you. Mm -hmm. So you had a huge explosion of these. And because basically anyone could open them up. But virtually as soon as this had happened some people started it's a typical sort of moral panic crap okay. about how horrible these places were and you know the damage it was doing to the to society so basically pretty much as soon as they came into into existence there were people trying to get rid of them mm. um Anyway, that system continued up to 1869. Well, why were they trying to get rid of them? Because they promoted maybe a bad Yeah, they culture. just thought there were too many pubs. So they, yeah. these were often quite small pubs as well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, 1869, they changed it. So then they had to go through the normal licensing magistrates. And you see the numbers going down and down and down. And I think the last ones disappeared, I think, in the 1980s. Um, but, I mean, I've, I've, I've drunk in pubs that were beer, beer only. In fact, one of the best pubs in Leeds, the Roscoe, was a beer house. Mm. And that's a distinction then. Pubs would regularly serve food as well? No, pubs oh. could sell all, all alcoholic drinks, a okay. full license. These yeah. places only had a beer license or later on a beer and wine license. Oh, yeah. So they, so it's a bit like Dutch supermarkets. They couldn't sell anything stronger than port. Right, 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 right. Mm. But was food uh, no. standardized? No. No, no, no. I mean, you did. You, you've always had pubs that provided food. Yeah. But it wasn't the default. No, I mean you had the crazy thing in the uh, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, where pubs would have to ha- have to get permission from the licensing lag- magistrates to, you know, if they wanted to expand or make big changes to their premises, and you'd have all these teetotal idiots who were licensing magistrates, uh, turn down 
applications to try and improve pubs and provide food and stuff like that because they wanted pubs to be horrible because then it was easier to campaign against them. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. The, the, the uh, pub you mentioned in Leeds, the Rusco, is it still going? No, knocked down for a road scheme. Oh, God, that's always sad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I remember... Um... No, it's a brilliant Irish pub. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Nice. They used to do the real Irish thing of just impromptu music sessions, just... In the back room. Yeah, just various customers. Yeah, nice. It's great. Yeah, I remember uh, growing up and and uh, when all the pubs then started doing food, and that was a big thing for the for the older generation. They, it was kind of quite sad for them that their favourite pubs were then doing uh, mixed grills and food and everything. Pubs would pubs specifically uh, drink only then in your time? No, I mean you quite often you'd you'd have things like. Uh, you know, cheese rolls, things or a like stew that. Stew on the bar or something. No, you didn't see that so much. No. Um, sometimes on a, on a Sunday lunchtime, they'd have things like roast potatoes on the bar mm-hmm. and, and various bits, bits and bobs. Mm. And then you'd have the fish man come around. Yeah, yeah. So uh, where will you get that here as well? Well, yeah, Brandje died last year. The, there was this guy uh, in that uh, passed around the Wilderman in the city oh, center. Really yeah, yeah, Brandje. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, isn't it? yeah but, but he came with eel, like smoked eel. And some yeah, but, but, but he used to have exactly uh, the same uh, thing. Uh, yeah. The big guy yeah. could come around the pub selling, you know, yeah. prawns and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you could. Would it be a, a thing like you could all always tell what time they were coming, kind of thing? I remember hearing that again. Family members saying things like, "Oh, you always know on Saturday afternoon." Uh, it was the, a specific the, day. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He yeah. did his round, and he could be a bit early, maybe, or a bit later, depending on his route and where he got held up. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> so there are comparisons to the to the drinking heritages, we would say, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess I don't know. yeah, yeah. I think it's up to run. I don't know uh, English pop culture that well, and and uh, the only thing I know is what I've seen when I've been there fairly recently, mm-hmm. and or the stories that I heard of it. Yeah, and well, I mean, I've, I've discovered that loads of things that, that some of the things <laughs> I thought about it were completely wrong. Um, like what? Um, like finding out in the in the late nineteen thirties mm. in the north, all the men were drinking halves. Oh. So we weren't uh, we weren't this pint uh, culture that we like to say we are. Yeah, that t- <laughs> and, and the only people who were drinking pints were Irish labourers, and everyone else was drinking halves, oh. huh. which is very much closer to uh, to the, the Dutch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. What else is interesting? Oh, that Guinness was mostly drunk by middle aged women. <laughs> That's great. Oh, so this all, this all comes from this this book that. Uh, by these people called Mass Observation. It's a book okay. called the, the Pub and the People, okay, which was published, I think, in 1940. So what they did was people just went into pubs and did things like look and see what was being ordered at the bar. So you've got things where they'll give where the book will have a list of what was ordered at the, you know, the, the, the in the public bar, bar of the Horse and Feathers on this particular day. No way. They were just observing. Yeah, and listening to people's conversations as well. So listening to what people were talking about. Just counting. Yeah. Like so, a... so, 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 so it's like this whole academic book, just purely about pubs in Bolton. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. So good. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant source because it, it, it's stuff that you don't normally see recorded because it's just yeah. everyday, everyday stuff that people think's boring. Mm-hmm. And when it changes dra- dramatically, then people forget what it used to be like. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm. It's uh, to think of a biologist studying uh, the behavior of a certain species, you know, just well, yeah, what they were like, like the analyzing. Well, yeah. what they were, they were anthropo- anthropologists. And, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I think they'd been, uh, some of them had been in Borneo or somewhere before, <laughs> and then they decided, oh, they'd go and look at the northern working class. Yeah. Uh, look at pop culture. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Mm. That would be interesting to compare uh, or see how it compares to nowadays. Uh, yeah, go, well, yeah. Is, if that Guinness is still ordered by an, uh, by no, I don't think it is. No, no. no. But, but I mean, <coughs> one of the interesting things, one of the differences was they said that there was virtually no underage drinking, which certainly wasn't the case when I was younger. Mm. Um, no, not when I was uh, coming through as well. There was a lot of underage drinking. Got more difficult to do when things like ID and uh, things came around, but. Oh, no, no one gave a toss when I was younger. <laughs> if you were 15 or 16, it was fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it, was, it's, it was just the thing that there was what the, rule, what the rules were and what was actually practised mm, yeah. weren't in sync. No. And they did suggest during the late 1960s reducing the drinking age to 16. Mm-hmm. It was always 18. No. Oh. Only went up to 18 during World War One. Okay. Mm. I mean, I think there was no drinking age up until the 1880s when it was 12. Hmm. I think it had been put up to 14 by the time World War I broke out. Hmm. And then oh. they put it up to 18. That's quite a step. Yeah, we, in my, uh, when I was 16, I was legal drinking age. And fairly recently it got raised to 18. Well, yeah, that happened when my son yeah. was uh, 17. Here in the Netherlands, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. He, so, oh, so, he'd, so he'd had a, a year of legal yeah, drinking yeah. and then suddenly he was underage. <laughs> so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how, since locating to here, what kind of traditions have you found with the, with the let's say it's, it's the pub in England and then there's the Dutch brown bar. Have you found yourself uh, enjoying any of the local cultures that you might find in a brown bar? Or, or what are some of the kind of key differences? Because I always thought that the pub was maybe somewhere you could just pop in for one at, at lunchtime and have one. Or there's things like the old boys would always come in for last orders like 15 minutes before the bar closed. Is there any of those similar kind of... Uh, classic drinking habits that maybe you've come across in in the Netherlands that you get? Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm curious for runs. (laughs) I think think it's generally less frantic here than it is in Britain. Yeah. I I think Britain is still affected by the short opening hours and people tend to drink more at a sprint. Yeah. Yeah, but this afternoon drinking doesn't really happen in the Netherlands, right? I think, or what I've seen abroad and also... I've been more to the US than uh, the UK uh, in the past years uh, visiting for beer or or, or also just uh, holidays. And what you see in beer places that they open up like midday or even before and people come in and they have lunch. Also, people clearly being at work, you know, they have lunch there, they have something to drink. I think in the Netherlands, you know, people take... Uh, uh, their sandwich box to work and they have lunch at work and later go at home and maybe some uh, pass a pub to 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 have a drink mm. uh, but a lot of people don't I, I, I have the impression yeah and I have, conversa- have had conversations with brewers that <clears throat> yeah about the differences in, in drinking culture but also in horeca you know mm. so what is open and when and who's using it and mm. in the Netherlands mm-hmm. I, I don't feel there's this this sort of yeah this daytime is just not very active for well, bars. Well, I think I think it's faded, but I mean it used to be that 
everyone would go to the pub on Friday lunchtime. Here in the Netherlands? No, in Holland, in, in Britain. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think it's not as much as it used to be. I mean, when I worked in London, in the central London, we used to go two or three lunchtimes a week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and quite often straight after work as well. Yeah. So lunch, back to work, and then after work again. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Time to take a quick break from our conversation with Ron and Sander. And if, like me, all that beer talk has got you thirsty, go grab yourself a beer, preferably pint-sized. While you do that, I want to let you know that if you're in Amsterdam, you should go check out the Oedipus Friend Shop at the Bad House on Java Plain. We've turned our bar into a temporary marketplace and invited lots of our friends down to sell their goods. Perfect for the holiday season. As well as some great gifts, you can see some live brewing, check out one of our live DJ sessions, and also next week I'll be recording an episode of radio from there. So if you see me there, make sure to say hello. For now, if you want to get in contact with me, drop me a message at the address radio at oedipus.com. Here's the second part of our talk with Ron and Sander. While you were just chatting there, Sander has poured us all Oedipus' new beer, Multiball, which is kind of influenced by Maldale. Do you, do you want to give it a quick introduction, Sander? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so it's our winter seasonal. Uh, it is, um, yeah, loosely based on, or nah, it's based on the idea of a mild ale or an imperial mild ale or triple X mild mm-hmm. ale of... Uh, I've have uh, I have a copy of uh, Ron Patterson's book, uh, the Vintage Guide to or the Homebrewer's Guide to Vintage Beer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it has all these recipes and a bit background on various styles, uh, vintage beer styles. And I was always, uh, yeah, in uh, uh, first time I read that book, I was sort of. Um, uh, yeah, really uh, fascinated by this uh, uh, story about Miles because the, in the introduction, uh, uh, Ron mentions, yeah, forget everything you know about Miles. And I also had a bit of this idea that this is this dark beer and such. And But then there are these recipes that are really like barley wines, you know, like 10, 11% ABV, very bitter, like really extreme pale beers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I found that fascinating. And um yeah, we had a double IPA as our winter seasonal for the past years, and this year decided to base our our seasonal beers on more classic beer styles, so either German and also English brewing tradition. And I thought for winter seasonal, a strong mild could be could be fun and interesting to to see what we can make out of it. Uh, but it's a bit, uh, yeah. So I think it's not a traditional. So the base is a, a 19th century. Uh, X66 mild, uh, so 8% ABV, um, all British malts, so mild ale malt as the base, bit of amber malt. Uh, I was looking for this <clears throat> more toasty, bready, slightly caramelly malt base, uh, fermented with Burton ale yeast, uh, yeah, uh, an English uh, yeast strain that can produce some fruity flavors. But then, um, yeah, it's hopped really like. A double IPA, but then with uh, English varieties. Uh, so there's uh, first gold, can uh, type goldings, and um, and also target in the dry hops and late hops. So it's a lot of late and dry hops, but with more, uh, yeah, uh, less extravagant hop varieties than modern uh, double IPAs would be, mm. uh, or modern hop forward beers would be. Mm. Uh, so. 
yeah, I don't know. The the it the the sample is from the bright beer tank. We're mm. gonna package it in bottles tomorrow. Uh, so therefore, uh, I uh, took this big growler bottle that I uh, just poured this beer out of. The um, yeah, it's a bit <laughs> uh, yeah. So sort of amberish color it's kind of hazy which uh mm. i think has to do with the, the the hopping rate so a lot of late hops late boil also we have a hop bag where we add whole flower hops um which was full of uh, these english hop varieties uh and then quite some dry hops <clears throat> um so i was surprised to find that people actually did do hopping in the hop back in the uk mm. was that not it's, a done thing no, that people did do it mm. in the past. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so it's not. So the idea of, of, of really late editions like that isn't new. Ah, okay. In fact, surprisingly, one of the breweries that I, I found it in, where I found it in the brewing record was Elgood's. Where's Elgood's? Uh, Wisbeach in almost in Lincolnshire. Ah, okay, cool. All right. Not so too so far I guess away it's, from. I guess it's Norfolk. Yeah. 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 So you had the impression it was a modern technique or invention. Yeah, well, that's what people often yeah. think that they've invented stuff. And then yeah. you look back and you realize, well, no, it's nothing new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I normally take, take delight in when people say on about some wonderful new thing they've just thought up and pointing out, well, this has been done before. Yeah, yeah, of course. And was it used then in certain styles? Mostly, um, I, or I, th I think, or just breweries that had that and then used it for every beer. Um, I think where I saw, I think was the pale ale, so a bitter. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you you normally didn't. Do, I mean, it's, it's like with dry hopping that, yeah, quite often mild wasn't dry hopped, but I know some breweries did dry hop everything. Yeah, um, and so they dry hopped their mild as well as well as their bitter. So. Often uh, reality is not as uh, simple. Yeah, or, uh, but this this reminds me quite a bit of this one beer I did with Pretty Things. Okay. Which was an 1830s Forex recipe. Okay. Um, I mean, that okay. was even crazier. That was 10.5% wow. ABV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know, when you put the hopping through a calculator, I think it came out to 120 IBUs, but that's, wow. that's, just, that's just calculated ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I, so here's not a lot of bitter hops. It's mostly towards the end. So mm -hmm. late boil, hop back, and mm -hmm. uh, dry hops. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a sort of a typical thing for miles. But what I really understood what what <laughs> if I understood Ron's uh, uh, um, information there correctly that there's miles is just means a beer that's supposed to be drank fresh uh, mm -hmm. and and opposes stock ale or keeping ale that yeah. are. Uh, meant to be aged at the brewery before salt. And yeah, yeah. Is, there, is there like a criteria to a mild ale then? Well, it depends when you're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, well, for, for reference, we all attended this, uh, well, this me and Sandra attended this talk you did on mild ales, and we saw that it varies a lot throughout uh, the history of its life. Yeah, it, it's it's it, it's quite remarkable how much it transformed itself over the years. Yeah, yeah. Um, the example I always like to give is... Another beer I did with, well, a pair of beers I did with Pretty Things, which was 1837 Barclay Perkins X Ale and the 1945 version of the beer. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely, completely, and utterly different. Mm -hmm. They had nothing in common whatsoever. Mm. So, yeah, there's nothing, apart from the fact that you're not supposed to keep it for very long. That's no, the only takeaway you can have yeah, from mild that's, ales, that's essentially. About it. Um, I mean, the style is actually not the mild bit, it's the ale. Mm -hmm. 
because you also had, had mild porter, just a mm. porter that wasn't aged. Um, mm. So ales really the style, mm. uh, meaning relatively lightly hopped, mm. or at least in the in the eighteenth century. Though that sort of went out the window in the nineteenth. Do we have, have any form of equivalent in the, in modern craft beer, would you say? Or is it just a beer that maybe needs to be consumed fresh, like an IPA or a New yeah. England IPA? Yeah, well, well, I mean, no, no, no one likes brewing mild ales in the craft world because it's too weak and too unfashionable. <laughs> it doesn't have the, to be weak. But that's the modern the modern. Yeah, the modern. Style, I right? mean, I quite like modern milds. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, but they're also quite nice drinks. So if you get the... The sort of uh, top class of mild from uh, the 1930s, where you've got something that's about four and a half percent ABV, dark in colour, relatively lightly hopped, mm. uh, all the colour from sugar. Oh yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny thing that comes up in a lot of these recipes in your books, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, of... that's one of the things that surprised me when I started looking at the at brewing records. I expected to see dark malts in the in the milds. Yeah, and then yeah, you mostly don't find it. Maybe some crystal, yeah, maybe some amber malt, but rarely anything darker than that. Sandy, you you mentioned that uh, the seasonals that you've been doing have been looking at these traditional beer styles. Mm -hmm. Why was it interesting for you to uh, make a mild ale or something influenced on that? Um. Well, I think, so we have a couple of lagers. So mm -hmm. uh, in spring, it was a Keller beer, a summer um, uh, California common. So paying homage to American brewing tradition, although yeah. it's relatively short. And then uh, the Dutch bog beer in uh, in uh, in fall, of course. Um, it's location and tradition a bit as well. Yeah, but also I think it has slightly to do with the fact that we like... Actually, I liked having Hosanna as our double IPA in winter. And I'm not so fond of the mo more Belgian winter beers that are often like really spicy and dark and more on the sweeter side. Um, and being, I, I like actually, or what, what I like as a brewer in the net, located in the Netherlands, that we're surrounded by re countries with really rich beer tradition or culture. So mm -hmm. Germany... We have a Keller beer from Germany. Well, I, I think we brew, or I, I am as a brewer, quite influenced also by Belgian uh, styles. And yeah, English, I, I, the English brewing culture, I also sort of very much appreciate. And, and I think the appreciation for mm. English beer and, 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 and uh, yeah, what, 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 what's being made nowadays, but also in the past, that has been uh, inspiring uh, mm. through my life as a brewer. So mm. I think that made sense to do it. And yeah, this this yeah, like I said, this this idea of having a beer that's supposed to be drank fresh yeah. Uh, really, yeah, to me, it really makes sense to make a very hop forward beer and very aromatic hop forward beer uh that really leans on the the flavor and aroma from hops mm. uh, because that's something that fades from beer uh, uh fast mm. um yeah that, that those things came together i guess and uh th th that's where the idea came from was it like a completely different uh process to you because i i always see you as a modern craft brewer who's always adding like a nuance to it like think about man leaf adding lemongrass to it and here you've looked at ron's books and notes is it like a different process, a beer making process for you? Yeah, I think what's 
kind of atypical is have a, a mild that's so much leaning on late and dry hop additions. So I think that's what uh, the Oedipus interpretation of a mild ale became, you know, mm. and some, it, it doesn't, I think that's often the case that when we start making a beer, I, I find myself often uh, looking back into what, so hardly a beer we make is really true to style. Maybe Penty that we uh, uh, also have on the table is an example because it's kind of, it's really a stout, you know, and it's sort of within the style guidelines. If you <laughs> send it into competitions, you might even win something. Hey, <laughs> nice. uh, but not all of our beers have that. But uh, because often it's a bit of this, a bit of that, and uh, therefore a bit uh, in the middle of, 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 different things but i find myself often looking back in what a style traditionally was and it could be a book uh, this book that i spoke about from uh, from ron but also at this but this book in uh, at the brewery it's it's called homebrewing classic styles and it's just about what the style guidelines are and how mm. you can make a california common or mm. a kulsch or mm. a bohemian lager and mm. it's these award-winning homebrewers recipes for uh yeah making a beer that's very true to style and i find it often interesting to see okay what do they say about a certain style and i never make that beer like mm. exactly like that or but that gives me a bit of a reference and then okay it should be about this oh i see they use these ingredients and mm. that can be a starting point of creating something that is actually an oedipus beer a unique mm. yeah yeah the yeah. problem with the style guidelines is that, that quite a few of them aren't right <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, yeah also that yeah yeah or they're so comp or they've changed so much and and well, yeah, what they, is a beer style uh, well also. they've improved them a bit i mean <laughs> I mean, I'd been banging on for ages about Czech beer styles. Now it was ridiculous. You just had this one called Bohemian Pilsner. Yeah. When in fact, there's a whole, you know, yeah. it's just, I, I think I worked out somewhere between 15 and 18 beer styles in, mm. in the Czech Republic. Yeah. Yeah. What What would you, is it, is it possible even to define a beer style? I think it's often also because it, it's, it comes from this beer competition. Yeah, well, uh, often, often it's pretty vague. I mean, if you go for Czech beer styles, you know, it's basically two based on two things: the gravity in yeah. Plato and the color, right? And that's it. Yeah, mm. yeah. But then there's different shades of pale or amber or yeah. Darkness. So you've got, you've got mm. three three colors. Yeah, pale, yeah. amber, and Le dark. Yeah, mm. leggy. Polotmavi, Polotmavi, Tomave. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've got the three colours, and then you've got the different strands. Yeah, and, and that defines it. And German beer is pretty much defined in the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the way Germans define them, not the way Americans define <laughs> German styles. You know, one of the things that continually drives me crazy is people insisting that Metzen has to be amber in colour and saying that the beer sold at the Oktoberfest isn't Metzen anymore. Well, yes, it is Metzen. It's just a hell is Metzen. Right. Uh, because Metzen exists in all different colours. And it's weird that the people who can't cope with the idea of hell is Metzen are quite happy to accept Schlenkeler, which is a dark beer and called it Metzen. Yeah. Yet for some reason, you can't have a hell is one. Yeah. And, and again, it's the same thing. What, what's a Metzen? It's a beer between 13 and a half and 14 Plato. Yeah. But is it then uh, the sort of 
the convenience people are looking for to put things in? Well, it's because I mean the problem we've had is that they've seen one variant of a of, 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 of you know a type of beer, and they've assumed that that's the prototype for all the beers with that name. Right. Yeah. It's it's like with export. You get exactly the same thing with export. The Sellers export and Dunkler's export. Yeah. You got light and dark versions, and, sure. and I mean, so to, to the old German, you, you know, just it's all sort of fallen apart a bit. But the old German definitions for for lager is you've got lager beer, which is something of about 11, 11 degrees Plato. Export, which is something that's going to be twelve twelve plus. Metzen, which is going to be thirteen and a half to fourteen, and then. Bock beer, which is going to be 16, and Doppelbock, that's going to be 18 and a half. Yeah. Mm. And they can come in any colour you want. Yeah. 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 Sorry, carry on. Yeah, Sam, yeah. may I? Yeah. Um, but the difficulty is, I guess, you know, what are you going to use a style for? I think we as a brewer have an idea that we can use a style to inform the potential consumer, okay, this is a bit what you can expect. Mm. But there's that. There's, I think the regional uh, tradition or, or the, the cultural but, but, I mean, but, way but, of, of labeling a beer. And then there's also, you know, the, the, the historical variants that, that have happened. And then uh, also these beer competitions, which... Mm. Uh, we're also, we're, yeah, we're, groups, yeah, yeah, but also we're looking for a way to categorize, yeah. whatever beers. Yeah, well, they well, you see, that's a, that's just one way of judging beer. The oldest beer competition, the one run by the Brewers Society in the UK, or whatever it's called now in the UK, that started in the 19th century. Yeah, they had very simple classes. It would be just something like mild ale of a certain gravity. Pale ale of a certain gravity, or you know, so draft mm. pale ale of a certain gravity, bottled pale ale of a certain gravity. So, so very, very broad categories. Mm. But um, would you would you then um, uh, promote the idea of that? <laughs> maybe we should define styles on region and then color and gravity. Well, um, <laughs> hold on. We're talking about redefining beer styles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is great. Yeah, yeah, this is, <laughs> no, this is good. No. Changing the also. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I was just pointing out that that's the way traditionally, usually beer styles have been defined. It's been been defined by things like color and strength yeah. for the most part. Um, sometimes also on the level of hopping, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So, so that and, and from those relatively simple differentiations, you've had all these more specific styles grow up. Um, I mean, going back to mild ale, you had stuff that was called mild ale in the 18th century, but it only, but it was just a very vague term then, mm. and it only really becomes a, a, a sort of reasonably well-defined style in the, at the beginning of the 19th century, um, and then obviously it changes a lot. And this is the other thing with the problem with style guidelines is they they are trying to set something in concrete. Yeah. And the one thing I've learned from looking into beer history is that beer styles have always been in a state of flux and that there's, it's very rare that they stay the same for yeah. any length of time. That's good, mm. right? Yeah. 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 Just because technology and ingredients are changing all the time, yeah. public tastes, all sort, there's all sorts of factors. Mm. Um, it, it's like you, we were talking about British beer being very different in the 19th century. Why is it very different now? Basically because of World War I and World War II, where you had very large tax increases and it just made it uh financially impossible to brew beer at the pre at the older strands mm. uh it would just be it would have just been too expensive for people mm. um, and so yeah i mean 
the way British... I mean, one of the weird things I discovered was that the period of least change that I could find in any anything I'd looked at in British beer history was 1952 to about 1980, where it was quite static, really, and there weren't very many changes in, in, the, in, in, the, in the way British beers tasted. Mm. was a remarkably stable period mm. and quite atypical. Mm. What changed in the 80s? Was it like political movement then that maybe well, raised taxes and things? Or? Well, no, then you start, then you start, it's in the 80s that you start getting the traditional bitters getting blander. Yeah. Um, and the rise of lager. Yeah. Uh, so that's, it's in the 80s when I think lager overtakes bitter as the most popular style. Yeah. Ah, nice. Anyway, I thought it was a really nice uh, conversation about are beer styles even relevant anymore? Who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, just one more moment for Multi Ball. Uh, if you do want to buy it and you listen to this podcast, <laughs> it's it's being released now. <laughs> uh, so do uh, tomorrow. tomorrow. Tomorrow will be tomorrow. in the bottle. But now I think the podcast will be released oh, yeah. in the future. Oh, yeah. oh, so it's, uh, it's now, oh, sorry, it's now out. <laughs> sorry, it's, it's, it is a difficult concept. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, like beer styles. <laughs> <laughs> time, time, yeah, time space. styles. Who knows? Uh, but yeah do do grab it it's a really really delicious beer um but maybe not the best promotional tool my next question ron is why uh did mild ales become so unfashionable <laughs> maybe not the best segue from promotion to uh asking about them it's like with anything it, it just became associated with old men <laughs> yeah yeah i've written down in my notes like uh, in my notes like bitters and miles often became viewed as museum pieces in my generation like timothy taylor's is uh is an alan partridge beer you know it's it's a joke on a comedy show um but yeah was it just because they were just it's a lovely beer landlord yeah yeah but in my generation it's 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 a kind of museum piece it's just a natural thing yeah fashions come and go i I keep saying to people that ipa is going to go out of fashion eventually just because that's what happens to everything. And Pilsner as well is going to go out of fashion at a certain point. I'm, I'm surprised it's kept its popularity as well as it has. It's so, been a while, huh? Yeah. yeah. It, it's just the, the, the way it goes with all beer styles. Yeah. And, as, and as soon as a drink becomes associated only with older people, yeah. then it becomes absolutely toxic to all uh, anyone under 30. Yeah. So is the life cycle of the Maldale very comparable to the, uh, to the IPA, I guess? Like... Uh... Yeah, uh, is is the because obviously the mild ale has changed so much in its life. Uh, the IPA, IPA must be a lot different now in the craft beer world compared to what it was uh, when it was first kind of drank, right? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the uh, 19th century IPAs, they're generally brewed as stock beers. Yeah, which is the exact opposite of the modern thinking. I, I mean, Bass is a good example. The mm. the beer that they were going to export to India. They racked into casks, Mm -hmm. stacked it up in the yard and left it for a year. And then they put it on the ship to India. Mm -hmm. So it was a year old before it even got on the boat. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another six months or a year on the boat? Well, depending on whether it was before or after the Suez Canal had been built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then being appreciated for a really bright, Mm. uh, refreshing beer, right? Yeah, yeah. Loaded with bread. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Mm. Uh, because Britannomyces was just such an important part. Well, we're digressing here, aren't we? But, no, but, but before, because Britannomyces was such an important part of the process of brewing IPA, mm-hmm. the idea being that you let the Britannomyces rip through it before you get it on the boat, and then there's nothing 
no food left anymore for anything nasty to eat. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a, a, a sort of another form of protection as a beer, along with the hopping rate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mild. I mean, what you see with mild ale, it, it probably overtakes porter in popularity about 1860, 1870, um, after which porter goes into a fairly serious decline in most of the country. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like earlier in the phase. And yeah, and then the most popular style right up to 1960, and then goes into pretty bad decline after that. Mm. But I mean, at some points in the late 19th century, especially out in the countryside, mild was probably at least three quarters of the beer being consumed. Mm. Um, that, that's just going by, if you see the old price lists from brewers, so where they'll have, you know, four mild ales and one pale ale, mm. it's pretty obvious which they're selling more of. Mm. Um but bitter starts catching up, and especially after World War Two, when people are uh, generally a bit better off and quite aspirational, then you see people moving over to drink drinking bitter because they see it as a higher class drink than mild. And mm. um, yeah, and eventually you see mild just go into terminal decline. Mm. And as someone who is obviously such a big fan of these uh, old style beers um, that maybe you can't drink anymore, how do you view? Uh, the modern craft beer kind of scene. Do you? Is there any new styles that you really like or you really detest? Um, the, the trends are just throwing any any old shit in beer and hoping <laughs> for the best. Uh, I'm not too keen on that. Yeah, I mean, I quite like a a decent IPA. Yeah, um, I, I generally don't drink them very much here. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm quite poor. I can only just drink Belgian beer. What's your What's your go to beer? What's usually Simbernardus Abt? What's that? Sanders laughing. Uh, yeah, Simbernardus Abt twelve. The quadruple oh, strongest. Nice. Uh, and that's usually in uh, usually in your fridge, right? Oh no, it's not in my fridge. I don't put beer in the fridge. <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 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 recently, my my wife is clearing out this one cupboard stuff cupboard under the stairs where I got. Beer stores, uh, all the stuff we found under there. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got like two and a half crates of Courage Russian Stout the last two years they brewed it. Oh, wow. Um, but I also found, I think about six bottles of Vesflatra 12 and a couple of the, of the eight right. and one of the six. So the old... Red capped six, yeah, the, uh, the dark one, which they haven't brewed for quite a while. No, no, uh, it's historic almost. <laughs> yeah, I, I, all sorts of weird old stuff. Yeah. Even some of my own beer, even, even stuff I'd brewed. Nice. Which was bottled in, I think, 1993. Wow. Whoa. That's uh, just about the same age as me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Radio Oedipus podcast. A big thanks to Ron and also to Sander. To do some further reading into Ron's work, please head over to his blog, Shut Up About Barclay Perkins, which is available at the address barclayperkins.blogspot.com. There you'll find links to his books as well. In case you can't find it, I've attached some links in the show notes. You can find all previous episodes of the show on our website, which is audipus.com forward slash radio, and by searching Radio Audipus on your podcast app. If you use Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure you like and subscribe to keep up to date. 
The music on today's show is written and composed by the one and only Ola iMusic. And tune in next time for more explorations into the culture of beer. Thank you.